Hello, and welcome to New Jersey is the World. Hey, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm originally from Newark, New Jersey, uh, but I grew up in Kenilworth, New Jersey, in Union County. Yeah, my story is because I saw you post the, um, I saw you post the prompt about, um, the Italian hot dog place, uh, Jimmy Buffs. And my first job when I was in high school, when I was 15, was working at an Italian hot dog place called Charlie's Italian Hot Dogs, which was down the street from me in Kenworth. And my title there was Potato Bitch. Yeah, hi, this is Danielle from uh, Fairville. I, I grew up in Old Bridge, and I listened to the premiere episode and heard Ricky from Carney's voicemail. Uh, she identified Cheesequake Rest Stop as South Jersey. Um, this reminds me very much of when I first met my husband, and I'm from Old Bridge, was just south of the Driscoll Bridge. He's from Union, which is maybe 20 minutes away, um, and he thought I was from South Jersey. This is a very common misconception conception of geography by many people who live in Hudson, Union, and Essex counties. Uh, we are fully central and do not want to be associated with South Jersey. Uh, so maybe buying Cologne at Chief Creek Rest Stop is an odd thing, but certainly not a South Jersey thing. All right. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Eric from Tom's River. Uh, this is about that pollution stuff. Uh, I would just like to apologize to my parents. In 1988, 89, I karate chopped my brother across the bridge of his nose and gave him two black eyes. I did not tell this to my parents until we were in the hospital and he was waiting to get a CAT scan or an MRI because they assumed that due to his two giant black eyes that he had cancer because we lived in Tom's River. Also, another fun thing about Sibagaygi, uh, if you look at it on the on Google Maps, there's Cardinal Drive. There's an extensive amount of in-ground pools along Cardinal Drive. In one of those houses, I lived there for about a year and a half to two years. And at some point, about three or four months in, something ate away the pool liner. And just this, like, greenish-black stuff started to seep into the uh, pool. And we informed the landlord, and they said that it was the... It had happened multiple times, and then just they came over, and they just put a cover on it. And we were just told never to go into it. And, uh, yeah, that's Cardinal Drive and Tom's River. It's a lot of pools, and it backs right up to that Sibagagi site. So love the podcast, you guys. Have a great day. Hi, this is Gabby, born and raised in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Uh, and if you're talking abandoned mental hospitals, uh, we're very close to the Marble Mental Hospital. And one summer, my mom was just, like, so sick of us kids. So my, she gave us to my dad, and he's like, well, here's something cool to show you. And he took us there. Uh, it specifically also took us, there's, um, uh, sadly, there's an unmarked grave uh, yard uh, across the street at Camp Arrowhead. It's also, like, neighboring another cemetery. And my dad told us that when he went to Camp Arrowhead at the YMCA camp as a kid, they would play baseball in that field, but then, like, just beyond the outfield was where, like, the patients could just kind of, like, have free time and wander around. So if you hit 
evolved too far out. You kind of had to weave through the patience, uh, getting their fresh air in. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Hello everybody, Chris Gather here. Welcome to episode three of New Jersey is the World. This is of course a monthly podcast exploring the great garden state, the most American state of all, New Jersey. And I want to thank everybody who left those voicemails at the top. Your, your voicemails are a constant source of delight in my life. I thank everybody who's been calling 973-780-4660 leaving them either thoughts on New Jersey, memories of New Jersey, experiences here, or for outsiders, questions about it. Uh, it really, this show is a community. I can feel it. The people listening are reaching out to me. I, I can feel, I see people leaving comments on things where I know they feel a part of it. And most of all, people have signed up at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. Thank you so sincerely for doing that. And I can feel most of all, that those people are really on board to be a part of this thing as a community. Dare I say a movement. Of course, speaking of the voicemails, one of the shows you get at the Patreon is Voices from the Jug Handle. It's a full episode of Just Your Voicemails, curated by Carson Cop, who produces, engineers, records everything you hear as part of New Jersey is the world. And that show, it's so funky and weird. And I love it, and he's really turned it into something special, and it's the perfect show to just uh, put it on and forget about your troubles for a while. Dare I say, if you do consume marijuana as recently legalized by the state of New Jersey, it would be the best show on our network for that. We also, on the Patreon, have food reviews, Don Finelli my dear old friend, and a food aficionado. Uh, if, if you've listened to his first two episodes, you know the passion is real. This month, he's talking about the Essex County version of the Sloppy Joe, specifically from the Town Hall Deli. Upon unwrapping, visually, it sounds like you were underwhelmed, maybe even disappointed. It wasn't, I wasn't disappointed. I was a little underwhelmed just by the look of it. That's all. Just because it all blended yeah. together. It's one of those things. I'm a little persnickety in my, like, how it all comes together when I eat. Yeah. And I think it needs to look good. Okay? Mm-hmm. Boy, Chris, was I wrong. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> was I fucking wrong. What a brilliant little, like, little Trojan horse this thing was. Really? Like, I took this. I took this thing out, intimidated, open it up. A little unimpressed. And then I start looking at it, okay? And I go, why isn't this shit sogged down? And why isn't this thing overflowing? No offense, Sloppy Joe. It doesn't look that sloppy, okay? So I'll throw that out there. It doesn't look that sloppy. That's the brilliant nature of this goddamn sandwich. Again, patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. You can hear Don's entire review of the Town Hall Deli Sloppy Joe. And if you've got food items that you really think represent New Jersey, call up and tell us 973-780-4660. We want to eat the food you recommend. We want to review it. We want to shout to the hills about local businesses here on the show. What else this month? You also get another episode of Fizzy Boys, where Don and I review sodas. Less Jersey-focused, but still me and Don having a hell of a lot of fun. You get merch discounts at the Patreon, all that stuff. You also get Garden State Agoots, which is everybody from Motown and, and Don coming together. It's sort of like when Biohazard teamed up with Onyx. Remember that? Judgment Night? 
soundtrack. And we do Q&As from Jersey Outsiders. Here's a sneak peek of what you'll get this month. Now, this next question, fascinated to see your guys' reaction. I was terrifically confused by it. Hey, Chris. This is Justin from Michigan. Uh, I'm just calling to ask you about how the milkshake scene is in New Jersey. Uh, My buddy and I took a trip out to New York a few years back in 2015, and we... Stopped at this rest stop where McDonald's was, and we had the best vanilla milkshakes we ever had. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering if that's just like anywhere a, in the country, like a golden goose egg we found, or golden goose. I don't know what the phrase is, but I was wondering if the vanilla shake scene out there is just the best, or if maybe it's just we got different out there, or Does he know how cha- chain restaurants work? Am I just crazy? Thanks. Yeah, what do you guys know? I don't know that New Jersey's known for its milkshake scene, nor that we have McDonald's uh, elevated above regular McDonald's. He might have just gotten lucky that day. Maybe maybe people know like really good milkshake places. I don't know. I was going to say, you go to any diner, though, you can get an amazing milkshake. As with any diner, you can go get an amazing anything there. But a good Jersey diner will give you a great fucking milkshake. They'll give you whatever you want. Maybe you're used to AAA. Maybe you even have that plain old no-frills roadside assistance. But when you're out there on the endless highways and byways where the dust meets horizon as the sun sets, Wendy, you're going to need something better than that. You're going to need Thunder Roadside Assistance, where I, Bruce Springsteen, personally come and meet you anywhere in New Jersey to fix your car. Flat tire? Need an oil change? Transmission blue? Not a problem. I'm ready to help. Because when you're trying to spring out of the cage, Wendy, the one that's been dragging you down when you just need one chance, one sparse, fleeting moment where you believe in yourself and possibilities and what's beyond these hemi-powered drones, Wendy, when things feel real, even though your daddy don't believe in you, I'll be there reaching out, one calloused hand reaching beyond the darkness into the light so we can all charge down these highways into the cool embrace of night, not knowing where we're going, but believing that just once, just once, Wendy, we might actually get there. Whether you're broken down in the Badlands, down by the river, or over in Atlantic City, I'm ready to help, Wendy. Thunder Roadside Assistance. Sign up at Finer Garden State Parkway rest stops now. We're right next to the Cologne kiosk. Hey everybody, Chris here. Now that the fake ad's done, just want to let you know we got a promotion running. If you go sign up at the Patreon this month, sign up anytime before April 15th, you get a free Universal Beach Badge. You know Jersey charges to get on the beaches. Luckily, the state has granted us the authority to give you a Universal Beach Badge that gets you on to any beach in New Jersey for free this summer. Sign up by April 15th so we can get them out to you by Memorial Day. Patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. By the way, this will not actually work. The state has granted us no authority, but you are welcome to try. And that's it. That's all I'm going to plug. Patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world this month. Keeping it quicker. Tightening things up. You guys get it now. Okay, we're going to get to Woe Town. Really great episode all about jobs. And again, if you hear anything in here that reminds you of your own story or anything you want to tip us off to, 973-780-4660. Enjoy it, everybody. I love this town. I love this town just like loving a hamburger on a sesame bun. 
In Jersey, everybody hustles, everybody grinds, and it means we work some weird jobs in the process. Come clock in with me, Mike D, and Bonaduce. There must be something in the water in West Orange. I've reached such avant-garde kids looking to start shit. In parks where we spit arson and sparks flips. Essex County, America's armpit. Carnival. Oh boy, that flea market. I bought a crossbow there. And I imagine it was sort of a two Roman legions charging at each other. Uh, Intertown fighting. Some people have been there in the middle of the night to whip pumas with belts. The last time I got in a fist fight, I threw a carton of Clinton's orange aid at a man's face. I'm going to take you to this terrible crime-ridden city and then I'm going to pull my pants down on you. No, I've never had a hoagie in my life. Or a grinder. This is like a weird vortex that doesn't apply to the laws of time and space. I know. Hello everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to another episode of Wotown, a podcast where three friends who grew up in West Orange, New Jersey and also went to Rutgers University at the same time find an excuse to hang out in their 40s. Mike D, how you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. I feel like I should always have a clever answer when you ask me that, but I never have one. That's fair. Measured, honest, Bonaduce, how you feeling? I always go with the raw emotion approach. I'm doing pretty good. I have uh, two days off from work due to the terrible storm outside, which you guys probably won't hear until some other time. Yeah, but, this uh, will pro- co- yeah. be coming out months from now, but uh, you guys are you guys are stuck up north while I'm visiting my parents in Florida as 20 inches of snow fall on your heads. And I, I can't say that I'm mad about it. Storm of the century! <laughs> Tonight... Everybody, we're talking about something uh, simple, a simple, clean topic that doesn't need much explanation. But, but here's just the truth of the matter. If you grew up in Jersey, everybody's got a little bit of a hustle in them. Everybody's looking to make a buck. And it means that a lot of us wind up having, uh, at least at certain points in our lives, very uh, layered relationships with the jobs we have, the things we are willing to do for money, the New Jersey specific jobs that we have found in our lives. Tonight we are discussing jobs, employment situations that we have entered. And we're looking for that Jersey spin on them. Whether it's a very Jersey person you encountered along the way, whether it's a very Jersey vibe, whether it's a business that could only exist in New Jersey or that does only exist in New Jersey. We're talking about jobs and how that goes here because any for any of our out of town, even I bet even the out of state listeners right now are going, yeah, I've met Jersey people and they do all have a little bit of hustle in them. So I get what this one is all about. Um, we always like to start, of course, focusing in on West Orange jobs. I, I really, I only had one uh, job really that I can think of during my time in high school, which I was a counselor at the West Orange summer camps. I used to have to go to a uh, Hazel school for one summer. And you know what they did though, which actually I think you guys all love. This is a chance where it's like the summer and all the kids from the different parts of town are in one building. And you would think it would be a good chance to let everybody get to know each other and maybe uh-huh. combat some of the uh, divisiveness around town. And instead what they did was they split your town groups up based on what elementary school you went to. So all the, all the Redwood kids were with all the other Redwood kids, all the St. Cloud kids with all the other St. Cloud kids. That's and so stupid. You, it was. It was just, for a town that dealt with so much divisiveness, but had so much beauty in it. They could have really done a lot of good, and instead they said, "Let's just keep it easy for ourselves." Like and mountaintop. I, listen, I'm 
17 years old at the time. I have no sense of authority in my life. I weigh about 115 pounds. Uh, no one, no child is going to respect me. I'll give you one guess which school I was put in charge of. Edison. Oh my no, God. it was only elementary schools. Washington. Washington school. For anybody who's listening, I, listen, I grew up on Franklin Avenue. I grew up right down the block from Washington Avenue until third grade. And my whole family is from the Washington school area. But it is the, t- I mean, it's the school, it's the oldest school. It's the one that's most falling apart and it serves the part of town. That's probably the most uh, put upon economically. And these kids just weren't listening to me. They weren't listening to me. It was complete chaos. Kids would uh, do a thing where one would run out of the room in one direction. One would run out of the room in the other direction. And uh, I'd have to choose which child to go try to find. I, I caught kids stealing. These kids had it rough, man. And uh, of course, our buddy, the strange cat, was a counselor at the same program the same summer. And he had St. Cloud, and they gave him an assistant counselor. That's bullshit. Well, he, he's strange. he was well-connected with he was. the rec department, if I remember correctly, he, which was the key to, that, to having a good experience at that job. He was. He had charmed everybody. He had like charmed everybody for a couple of years beforehand. So he was like, give me the easiest school, and I'll take an assistant counselor who will do most of the work. Well, I think because he grew up seriously in Cloud. Like, if he wanted it easy, he probably wanted like Redwood or something. Mm-hmm. I want. He might have had Redwood. I'll take Redwood. Yeah, I like the Washington. I wound up loving it because at, at a certain point, I just realized, oh, I'm not going to be good at this job. Um, I remember one time uh, I had a cup of coffee before I went in, and this girl told me my breath stank. And for the entire day I was there, it was just a whole bunch of kids making fun of me for having bad breath start to finish. And I was just like, all right, I don't give a shit about this anymore. Uh, well, I remember, too, maybe I'm imagining this, but I feel like the kids at Washington school and an elementary school were like smoking cigarettes when they were eight. Yeah, yeah there was, sure. it was, it was tough, man. It was, it was tough. I know uh, my brother went there until third grade and it did not go well for him. Uh, Shocker. <laughs> but it was also, you guys remember, I, I don't know if I should say the full name, but I don't even know if this guy would still be alive. You guys remember the bulldog? Like, oh, yeah, oh, of course. Him. That kid was a tough kid from like day one. This is the type oh. of kid we're dealing with down there. I mean, he was he was a grown man when we were ten <laughs> years old. I mean, he really was like shaving. looked and acted like yeah, shaving. At, you know, wore like a tough guy leather jacket in yeah. elementary school <laughs> and was not the kind of person that you would ever disrespect. I also feel like he was part of that very elite West Orange club of people who drove to middle school, who drove yeah. themselves to middle school, like yeah. operated their own motor vehicle. There was a guy named Randy. To- there was a guy named Randy at Edison who used to drive to middle school when a student, it was crazy. So I, I want to turn the floor over to you guys though, because that's really the only one I got is, is just a, a bunch of young kids from the tough part of town, realizing that I had no authority and torturing me for a summer. But Mike D You've really gone to town. This episode is, is you've said for a while, we need to be doing this one. And I want to turn it over to you. Where do you want to start? Because you have a plethora of information laid out in here. I mean, I think I'll take your segue. I also, I worked at several summer camps, but one of them I think might be the saddest job experience <laughs> of my entire life for so many different reasons. You know, and... 
it wasn't easy to find a job when you were a teenager. And looking back on it now as someone who hires people, not teenagers, I realize why. Because as a teenager, the only appreciable skill you have is that you're alive, that you can physically show up to a place and move things or guide people and that you have no skills whatsoever, awful interpersonal skills. So it was hard to find a job. And, you know, there, there was a friend that I had in high school and she said, oh, I have a hookup for the summer camp job. It's at a place called the Cabana Club. Call up this lady. So the Cabana Club was right. It was sort of a, a fake rich person's beach club. It was, it was, it it played into all the socioeconomic weirdness of West Orange because we had the town pool, the Ginny Dunkel pool named after the Olympian from West Orange, Ginny Dunkel. And then there was the Cabana club, which seemed to largely exist. So families from certain neighborhoods did not have to go to the town pool with the riffraff. It was a paid, it was was a paid beach club. Yeah. But it was just as shitty yeah, as as the town pool, it just had a, it just had a slightly yeah, more. Like you just had to pay more money to go yeah. into it. That was the only difference. And so this, you know, this this girl that I'm friends with, she she gets me this job at the Cabana Club, and I've never worked as a camp counselor. <laughs> I have no experience with children whatsoever. So I go there the first day and I have my orientation and it's given by some, you know, college age woman who's down from the summer who goes to Syracuse. She's like, it's going to be great. And I'm like, well, what's the job? And she's like, well, each of us will be in charge of five, two and three year old children. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be problematic. Like, well, what do you mean in charge? Like, well, we take them to the pool. We make sure they have snack. We play games with them. Like, okay, I can I can relate to this. We have to change their diapers. So I've never at this point changed a diaper in my life. And still to this day, even having done it thousands of times, the idea of wiping human shit from another human being's ass is just disgusting. I mean, it just is. And so she's like, you have to change the diapers a few times a day. And I was like, well, how much do we get paid? And she's like, well, here's the great part. You don't get paid. I was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, you don't get a paycheck because technically you're a volunteer. She's like, but what happens is twice a summer when each session ends, the parents will come and give you a really large cash tip. She's like, last summer I made $7,000. And I'm like, all right, this sounds actually good. Like, I'll take a tax-free envelope of $100 bills to do this. So I go to the camp and I start working there and I have all these kids. And the worst part about it, though, was you're taking care of these two and three year old kids and their parents are 25 feet away. And so some of the parents are happy to ignore their own children and enjoy the beach club. Some of the parents are hovering over you, you know, every second of the day, busting your chops. So I'm there. And then after the first two weeks of working, I start to not feel so good and I go home and my mom's like, you don't look right. I'm like, yeah, I don't really feel good. And I have the, all these sores on the inside of my mouth and my mom's like, all right, we got to take you to the doctor. She takes me to the doctor and the doctor does his tests and looks at all these sores. He's like, you have Coxsackie virus. I'm like, what is Coxsackie virus? And he's like, well, it's also called like foot and mouth disease or hand and mouth disease. That's the thing babies can get, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's something that babies can get. 
super contagious. So I call up the woman who's my boss, this this college girl from Syracuse. I'm like, yeah, I can't come into work. I got this Coxsackie virus. And she's like, oh, you too? Yeah, I've got it too. Everyone that works at the camp has it, and we're going to shut the thing down for two weeks. So we all get Coxsackie virus. Two weeks later, I go back, and I used to ride my bike to across West Orange to this place. I ride my bike. I do my work. Everyone's back from Coxsackie virus. I'm riding my bike home, and the next thing I know, I'm flying through the air onto Pleasant Valley Way. And I just had gotten hit by somebody in a minivan, and I'm laying in the middle of Pleasant Valley Way, and I'm like, ugh. And out of the minivan gets, like, one of the cutest older girls from our high school and her mother. And they're like, are you okay? Are you okay? And my immediate reaction is like, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of this really cute girl who went to high school. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm literally bleeding. My bike is actually <laughs> bent in half. And I kind of like drag myself onto the sidewalk and they drive away. And I, I like limp over to a payphone and I call my mother and she comes to get me. And she's like, what happened? And she's like freaking out. And she wants me to go and like confront this family and find out who they are. So it's like, not, and then summer goes on i'm hit by a car i get coxsackie virus it comes to get tip time i get no tips so i work at this camp i get a disease a bizarre contagious disease i get hit by an attractive older girl at our high school and her family and i'm laying in the road and then i get no money for the entire summer so to me that is the saddest job none i think i literally somebody gave me like a 20 dollar bill it was like don't spend it all in one place like that kind of thing nothing And that is, that is West Orange. You work, you go work at the 1% club. You walk away with nothing but a foot and mouth disease. It was scary. I remember going with your mom and Franny to go pick you up because you would like, you were like literally like by himself. Like nobody called the police or anything. I was just like (laughs) bloodied right before you get to 280 there. It was like a super Mm -hmm. dangerous area. (laughs) Like you're lucky to get killed. Like that's right by the 280 engines on Pleasant Valley where you're like, Cars go in every different direction. Oh my god, it's so funny. Who is that like adult? It's just like, oh yeah, on the way to uh, the store, I ran this kid over. Like, literally ran okay. you over. If that was anybody, yeah. you know, I mean, if if you'd called the police, that would have been like a hit and run. Anyway, whatever. I'm not like a sickler. Now, back in the day, when you could run over somebody and just leave the scene, and nothing ever happened. I'm also seeing, Mighty, you, you've told a camp story, I've told a camp story, and I'm jumping around the outline. There's another thing listed about a Y day camp that you guys worked at together, and it actually, and I don't know if we want to go there, but something I've, I've long wondered about, I don't even know, that I'm sure our listeners are wondering about. Apparently, this, this uh, job at the Y day camp explains the origin of the name Bonaduce. <laughs> That is where the nickname came that from. That is exactly from from fellow we counselor uh, Mr. Lou. PJ. No, not PJ, but that was remember Jeebs? But it, I think it was oh, yeah. uh it was Lou. See, Nick's sister we harassed him. <laughs> who was a to this day an extremely responsible and well adjusted adult. <laughs> Got Nick a job at the Y Day Camp, and then Nick got me a job at the at the Y Day Camp. So we worked at this camp together, 
And again, like we, or at least I can only speak for myself. I had no qualifications to work at this day camp, but you were a good counselor, Dick. We were good counselors. Much better than me. Oh, Mike was a good counselor for sure. I just, they always gave me the bad kids because I had to like rule with, if you were bad, you got sent to me and then I would try to give like the tough, tough love and then, uh, you know, punish them with uh, games of dodgeballs, counselor versus kids. (laughs) Well, the, the... The Bonadute story brings up, like, the background of it is, and this shocks me to this day, and I I imagine this is not how things work anymore, is all of these camps, the Cabana Club camp that I worked at, the Y Day Camp that Nick and I worked at, they were all just run by 20-year-old kids at college with no qualifications whatsoever. So, you know, there was always a bit of a Lord of the Fly atmosphere, and there was this guy one of the counselors who thought that Nick was Italian. And he would every time he would see Nick, he would be like, Hey, Nicky Bonaducci. Hey, Nicky Bonaducci from West Orange. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right, Lou, I'm not, I'm not Italian. I'm Greek. Well, you know, whatever. So, of course, all my friends, but me and Mike D worked there. We were good counselors. We held our shit together. And then, of course, all of our friends get jobs there. And the whole Bonaduce thing starts. Lou is busting my balls. Of course, everybody just starts calling me Bonaduce at that point. And then my alter ego emerged as Nikki Bonaduce, which encompassed everything that you know you see today. So anyway, <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them. And it's a funny well, name. So how could you go wrong right I, now? My sister, calling. my sister worked with that guy because that's why I used to rip on him so bad because I was like, you loser. I was like, because he was five years old than us. I was like, dude, you're five years old than us. I said, you're still working at a fucking day camp in the summertime. I'm like, that's fucking pathetic. You know, and like, oh, I'm a jerk off 17 year old kid. Like this guy's probably like, I'm going to fucking beat the hell out of this guy. So yeah, well, Nicky Bonaduce. <clears throat> One day I called Nick Bonaduce so many times that he got so mad at me that he left me at the camp. He drove drove away and I was stranded at this day camp. He was just like I, I just like pissed him off. Like right, I, I kept busting your chops and I knew that I was being an asshole. And finally, you're just like, all right, see ya, and you just drove away. And I was like stranded by myself in Livingston, you know, uh, pre cell phone, pre pre Uber days. It was and a I pain really in the ass, you know, because I used to take the bus up there. You'd have to walk all the way down. Um, Livingston Avenue till you get to uh, Northfield, take the bus down Northfield and then walk across Gregory to get back home. So it was kind of, I used to do that like all the time before I could drive. Now, I have been told, I've been tipped off by a tipster <laughs> that I should ask about something called the harmonica. <laughs> remember the harmonica. You don't remember the harmonica? I can't remember. You have to like spark something. I, a lot of so, this stuff is buried deep. There was this, there was this counselor, out of my brain. <laughs> there was this counselor that we worked with for, for a couple of years there. And he was just, I'm going to say he's weird, but really looking back, he was actually just well-adjusted, nice and earnest. He was a nice, <laughs> decent human yeah. being. Unlike which the rest of us. did not fly with us back in those days. <laughs> no, which immediately created an opening for us to make his life as miserable as possible every day at work together. Mm. So, one of the things that he would do is at various points during the day when the campers were around, we would walk around, he would pull out a harmonica and play songs and be like, oh, you know, you're like, burp, 
and like you know try to try to be cheerful and make a fun thing of it and you play harmonica which of course grated on our nerves to no end to us that harmonica was just the most offensive thing in the world it just stirred a, a red hot boiling anger in us and a hatred for this guy and so part of our job was every day because we were at the ymca in the afternoon We'd have to go into the locker room, you know, everyone, the kids, take all the kids swimming and then bring them back after. So every day he would put this harmonica in his locker. So we go swimming at the pool one day. We take the kids back out. We, we come into the locker room and everyone's getting changed. He's like, where's my harmonica? Yeah, did somebody Nick, take my harmonica? Nick, you just started rubbing your brow. Do you remember this story? It's kind of starting to remember okay. something terrible Mike occurring. D, Mike D, continue. <laughs> I, I can't find my harmonica. I can't find my harmonica. And then, like, out of the, the other end of the locker room, somebody says, hey, I think I found your harmonica. And that was where the bathroom is. So he goes over to the bathroom. He says, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. And his harmonica was in the toilet, broken in half, and someone had shat upon <laughs> his harmonica and not bothered to flush. So I don't know that if is- any... If there any guilty party what? was there. It was and, probably somebody we knew. <laughs> but that's also, to me, that's also like the, that is a very, that's the very Jersey side of that job in which like, if somebody was annoying you with a harmonica, I bet in most places you'd just maybe talk to the person or maybe say mm-hmm. to the boss, hey, this is kind of irritating all of us. And if you could maybe just let them know, it's a little inappropriate to just bust out a harmonica willy nilly during the workday. But where we're from, you take the harmonica, smash it and shit on it. And then also leave it as a warning for the person to not get a new harmonica. And to add an extra awkward layer of this fast forward two years, I go to Rutgers university. I move into my dorm room and I go to the first dorm room meeting with the RA, and who is a resident of my dorm but the man whose harmonica was shattered? No. Yes. No. Did he remember to, it? Oh, he remembered me. I don't know that he blamed me for the harmonica shattering, but he definitely <laughs> remembered, remembered me in a not-so-fond light. Uh, now, Mike, you have a few other things listed from West Orange. If it's okay with you, I might want to just for time's sake, jump ahead to Rutgers, circle back to those other things if we have time. Um, cause in talking about working jobs together, you actually, I feel like you are this guy, like, like you said, like you get a job at the Y and then the next thing you know, five of your friends have a job at the Y. I feel like this has happened a Mistake. few times, including at Rutgers where... <laughs> All of our friends, and I think you were the first one, there was a system called Media Services. Um, and I think you were the first one of our crew to get it. And then there were about like 15 people on your family tree after you who uh, I think all your roommates got jobs at Media Services, then me and all my roommates did, and then some of our friends, like people you didn't even know who you were responsible ultimately for them getting this Media Services job, which is tied up so intrinsically with Rutgers that it qualifies as a Jersey thing. Um, how did you stumble upon media services? We'll, we'll explain to people what this is. When, uh, when you used to get a financial aid package to go to Rutgers, part of it was they would give you a work study job. And a work study job was 
a borderline fake job at the university, but the money from it came from some kind of government grant. So I go to college and I get my work-study job. And my first work-study job is literally I had to go down to the student lounge and I was in charge of changing the channel (laughs) with a TV remote control. (laughs) That was my job. And this this sounds like the greatest job in the world, right? But actually what happens is... You spend get- all your time fighting with <laughs> kids mad. from New Jersey. Like, we want to watch the football game. Oh, we want to watch the Melrose Place rerun. And so after a week of this, I was like, I can't do this fake job anymore. I'm gonna get, one, I'm probably going to get killed because for changing the channel. And two, it's Some just boring. Devil's fans. Some devil's fans are mad at you. It's just going to like brain me when I'm turned in the other direction to, to take the remote. So I go to the work-study <laughs> office. And I'm like, look, you got to give me another job. And they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, what do you like? I'm like, I don't know. I like, you know, punk music and books. They're like, okay, great. We have this job at, at the library called <laughs> Media Services. <laughs> so I go over to the Media Services. I walk down to this basement warren of offices, and I meet this older, nutty professor guy named Wayne. And he's like, oh, you're here for the job? I'm like, yeah. And my job... To start with, basically, I sat in the basement of the library, and professors would come in and say, oh, I need to to watch this 1942 BBC production of The Seagull. And I would go and get the film. I would put them in a little room, put it on a projector. They would watch the film, write their fake dissertation that they needed to write, and Give, you know, tell me they were done and I would put it away. And it was, and it was a great job. Oh, and that then, wasn't what it was when I was there. By the time I got no, that job, that wasn't a factor. When I was there, it had become really kind of uh, tense and hellish where that sounds awesome. The one-on-one sessions with the professors with us, it was, you'd show up the different VHS tapes professors had ordered for their classes were there. You'd go drop them off. But the real job was when shit broke with these AV systems, they'd call you and you'd call that guy Wayne and he was on the Livingston campus and your job really was to just go and bullshit and pretend you knew how to fix this thing until Wayne could get there and really fix it. And you got to remember at Rutgers, it's a state school. There's classes with 400 kids in them. And invariably what would happen is there'd be some broken projector and you'd go in and have to pretend to know how to fix it. And the professor would just fucking yell at you in front of 400 people until this guy Wayne showed up to fix it. And it would take him 30 seconds. And it was, it was actually degrading. It was actually pretty degrading. See, I, I was lucky because I got to work directly with Wayne for a year. And so I think he, he, was nice to me and I think I missed a lot of the embarrassment like I would get the really easy jobs that yeah. would literally be go into a small classroom Oof. push in a VHS tape of you know the BBC Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice leave <laughs> pick it up in two hours and you're done you know see I I was always at like this I was always in that like the the that main area that had like Scott Hall and and uh what do they call it there? With the, uh, with the William of Orange statue. Yeah, like the quad. The, the main. Qu- yeah, like that whole main area. And dude, you'd sleep in this office. They had beds. All the offices had beds in them. Every single I never one. understood that. Why we I had beds. Loved, I mean, it was I, great. I mean, there were some shifts. I'm complaining, but there were some shifts where I'd legitimately show up, go to sleep, wake up at the end of my shift and go home. That was great. And then there's some where it's like, oh, hey, somebody at fucking... Van Nice Hall 
something broke, go get yelled at for 20 minutes in front of your peers while your friends who are in the class jeer and heckle and mock you. Um, that was bad, that side of it. I do think, though, it was like, it was us. You got all the punks jobs, and it was just a group of punks and a group of hippies. And at least by my time, they did not like each other, and they used to communicate via fucked up graffiti. I don't know if this was present during your stretch, but the hippies would like write things on the desks like, hey, punks, clean up your trash when your shift is over. And then you'd see like some of the other punk kids, which straight up be like writing shit back that's like, hey, hippies, I will stab you with a knife if I see you don't ever write anything to me on this desk again. Like actual threats, actual drawing caricatures of each other to mock each other. It was bad. And they all, but the, you know what the best thing about that job was, Mike D? Do you remember they gave you the fucking beepers, the fanny pack with the beeper they on it? They gave you a fanny pack, a they customized media services fanny pack that had a key on a brass chain <laughs> a beeper and some uh, some screwdrivers that no one knew how to operate and, but the the whole point of the beeper was they're like okay because if something goes down in Campbell Hall but there's a more important thing that we need you for and Friedling Eisenhower will beep you and then you call us and we'll tell you I'll actually get to this job but in reality it just meant that I would just leave so I'd just go home I'd go to Tata's <laughs> I'd go wherever I wanted. And I started pushing this and pushing this. And there was one time where I uh, was in Jackson, New Jersey with the beeper, which is how far from New Brunswick is Jackson? That's a a pain in the ass drive. Is that Ocean County? 30 miles, right? um, uh, Monmouth County or where I'm gonna, I was in, I think I, I was definitely in a different County with the beeper. Like if they had called me and said, Hey, walk to the next hall over and get it. I would have been an hour away. Then you got like, what do you have to do? Find like a pay phone back then. Right. Or did you have a cell phone? Well, I mean, you had your, you didn't really have cell phones. No, it's in ocean County. I was in ocean County, New Jersey being paid by Rutgers university, <laughs> praying that the beeper didn't go off. It was not smart. Were you in one of the official issue cars that they had or not? That was done. Something happened with that. I heard they used to do that. Oh, I know what happened. What happened with that? Because I used to hear that they would give you cars, but we didn't have cars. So they used to have a small fleet, four or five, and they were Taurus SHO wagons, which to my understanding are, or were at the time, pretty fast station wagons. And so you would get this as part of your job there. And so everyone would take these things out and race them around the campus, race them on route one. And one night some people took them and they decided to drive into the nature preserve off road onto the trails. And they drove this station wagon off road into the nature preserve (laughs) and they got stuck there. And when they were hiking out to try to figure out a way to get it out, a Rutgers cop saw them and pretty quickly figured out what had happened, and that was sort of the end. And then after that, you had to take the bus. You couldn't get a, you couldn't sign out this high-powered station wagon to <laughs> to cruise around anymore. My other memory, the final thing I'll say about media services is really humiliating. But um, you know, they put you in these offices where sometimes you'd work a whole shift and not get one call, and it's one person there. Because we should be clear, Mike D, Wayne worked on a campus in like a real office and they had these little satellite offices for all the students in the actual like academic buildings. So you're in there in a bed, nobody's knocking on the door, nobody's bothering you. And if you do get, if anybody's going to bother you about anything, it comes via a beeper. I'm a 19 year old boy. 
all I did, like all you do, and right, I just fucking sit around looking for excuses to jerk off. Let's be honest. Let's be honest about it. And they had these computers in these little satellite offices, and. Even by the standards of 2000, 2001, these things were just janky and they were text only computers. You could basically get on there and check your Rutgers email, but there was no visual web browser. But I figured out that there was a web browser you could access. You just couldn't get any images on it. So me and a few of the other kids in my circuit uh, found a website uh, that was an erotic fiction <laughs> website. And I used to sit in the media services offices and pleasure myself to text oh, pornography in what has to be like, I tell oh. people about how depressed I was in college and you hear a story like that. And you're like, yeah, I love the penthouse letters. Of course. These I was people, riding my lawnmower having these, a beer. Dude, these things. I looked I out was, across the lawn and I saw <laughs> my neighbor standing there naked. These things I was reading made the penthouse letter section look like it should have won a fucking Pulitzer, man. This was like low-grade erotic fiction made by weirdos. It was bad. Your first instinct wasn't to basically use that as a place to to bring, you know... People that you met. That was my immediate instinct. I was not as cool as you. I hear what you're saying. I had, yeah, I had a girl. You had a nice girlfriend. I had a very nice girlfriend. This summer, I got, I worked there for summer class in my first year, and she was studying abroad in Italy. And it was a really miserable time in my life because we were like, hey, we're going to be apart a whole summer. So let's just have like an open summer. And she hooked up with an Italian dude, and I didn't hook up with anybody because I was a fucking loser. This was also the summer where I was like living with your brother in my broken down, awful house. He's getting like physically thrashed by psychos with computer mouses. I, I'm as depressed as I've ever been. I wasn't exactly a fucking Don Juan bringing people back. Although I know people did constantly screw in those media services offices. I was just, I was not, I was at the level in life where I was masturbating to uh, homemade porn fiction. Image I didn't free. know. And now I feel really sad. Like yeah. I should have been yeah. coming around and bringing you know, bringing some people for you to meet oh, at media services. You were already one of the two or three people keeping me alive in that town. That's now, where we started working at uh, Livingston Liquors in uh, the border of North Brunswick right. and New Brunswick. Talk to me about this, Nick. We haven't that heard was, much uh, about you from your deep we got to New meet, Brunswick days. We, <laughs> this is one of the more normal jobs I had and, and I really like liked it, even though it was a, it was a love-hate job. But uh, we worked at a liquor store, I think. Mike D, I started working there first, and I got Mike D a job there. Yeah, you you got me the job there, and then like a whole bunch of my friends wound up working there after we left. And um, the biggest mistake of working in liquor store was that these guys let us have a beer tab, and <laughs> like some weeks we just didn't get paid. It would be like, and they'd let it run for like a while. But that was an interesting job. We had a lottery machine there, uh, a great cross section of uh, a, a part of New Brunswick where you just had people from North Brunswick. New Brunswick. We knew everybody. It was quite the uh, community gra- gathering place. I once, uh, I, I would work the lottery machine <laughs> nonstop. And it was one of those places where, right, if you're, if you work lotto, you figure out that people who are really into lotto feel that certain places are lucky and they, they have entire systems and they will only buy lotto tickets to certain places. And, They'll come up to the lotto machine. I, I still remember this one lady, Elaine, would come every day and spend 
I think it was two hundred seventy one dollars on lotto tickets, and she had a Manila every folder day? every day. She had a Manila folder where they were all her combinations and things were written out, and you would punch them in. and And she liked me because you know I was had half a brain and could punch them in accurately. And uh, so I would work the lotto all day. And there was this other couple that would come in every day, this older Asian couple, and they were really nice. But same thing, they'd spend two, three hundred bucks a day on lotto. And in my head, I would always be like, man, I can't believe they do this. I feel really bad. Like, why are they doing this? One day they come in and they hand me a ticket and I put it under the scanner and it goes like, beep, 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 beep. And $1.7 million lotto winner. And they were like, they, they knew that they had a winner and they were psyched. And like, you sign the form and the owner of the store comes over and they sign something and then what? like you take it away. And then they came back maybe two weeks later and they gave me $200 bills and they were like, you were lucky for us, you know, and, and gave me two, $200 bills. And I was like, oh, maybe people actually do win the lottery if they compulsively gamble yeah. hundreds of dollars every day. They gave people you come in with sheets and sheets of numbers. And like you were so used to punching these people's numbers, you'd remember their lists, you know? Yeah. It was terrible. Three, like you knew the sequences. You'd be like, 371 wheel, 371 box, 281 wheel, 281. Back pairs, fucking this, that. And that was before they had midday drawings. Thank God. Now people can lose <laughs> twice as much money a day. <laughs> I like that oh, they, it's terrible. they come back, they give you two $100 bills. They're like, you were lucky for us and you will never see us again because we no, need, no longer need to hang out in this janky liquor store on well, the outer edges of New Brunswick. $1.25 tall boys, a shot of Bacardi Limon, uh, $20 in scratch off tickets, and then you'll get yourself some <laughs> fried chicken wings to the Chinese food place down over there while you're, while you're doing your laundry in the laundromat next door. And you, you could think- also take care of your shopping at the Acme, which was on the other end. So it was a, it was a strange microcosm. Hopping and strip. Hopping oh and strip. Oh, my God. It was jumping, man. In the summertime, it was out in the street. There was like brown bag, brown bag. You know, everybody's out there hanging out. So many, so many strange behaviors of like people observed in the liquor store. It's probably one of the greatest places to ever have an opportunity to work. My favorite strange behavior, which I think might be localized to New Jersey, and I would actually classify as a folk remedy that Nick and I discovered, was when we worked there in the winter, people would come in and they would be like, oh, give, give, me, a, give me a pint of rock and rye. And I'm sure 99% of the people listening to this have no idea what rock and rye is, which I had no idea either until I worked at this liquor store. So rock and rye is a very low shelf whiskey and it comes pre-mixed with chunks of fruit in it so it's like someone what? took a t- took, it's like took whiskey brandy and yeah and it's like very sweet and like it has fruit like yeah it'll have like a cinnamon stick in it and usually like a little piece of orange <laughs> and something else and anytime like the the best ghetto remedy for any kind of like if you catch a chill or if you think there's cold coming on if you have a cold you, you yeah they it's a cure-all Everyone would say, oh, if you're sick, you, you don't know this. If you're sick, yeah. you buy a pint of rock and rye, you go home, you get under the covers, drink you it. drink the pint of rock and rye, you sweat it out. Sweat and it that out. was a known thing. And we would sell tons of rock and rye to, to people who were not feeling well. I almost feel like there was like a someone would go to the doctor and be like, oh, you don't need a box of ceiling. What you do is you go to Livingston Liquor, you buy a pint of rock and rye, get under the covers, you'll be, you'll be good as new in the morning. I still do that, though. I mean, like, honestly, I think sometimes you just need to, like, <laughs> knock yourself out for a little bit. 
And like, you know, you, you let your body fight it, sweat it out. And, Specifically and with rock and roll, though? I don't know. I mean, I make myself hot toddies when I'm sick and I'll drink, you know, I'll put brandy in it, little easy Jesus, you know. What? Ian J. Brandy. It's easy Jesus. Oh, there's all the, uh, there's all different names for the different liquors in a liquor store. I'm a teetotaler, so I didn't, I'm not familiar with the easy yeah. Jesus. You um, got Naughty Head. Got Naughty right. Head. Naughty, naughty Head. Seagram's Gin, also known as Naughty Head, because naughty if you head. look at the bottle, it has knots of wood in the glass on the top of it. Well, I was originally told that it's because if you drink too much of it, you'll fall down and you get a naughty head. Uh, <laughs> but it is the bottle. Sense. Definitely make sure Seagram's Gin bottle is naughty. I, I have uh, one more <laughs> job from this area of my life I'd like to share. And then there's a very important one on this list I feel like I need to ask you two about. Another job you had together. I worked for one day as the room service delivery guy at the Hilton Hotel off of Route 1 in East Brunswick. And it was, it was oh one of the strangest days of my life. And I encountered a gentleman of New Jersey that I would place money you do not find anywhere else. I saw they were advertising in the Targum Classified section that they wanted an overnight shift uh, room service delivery guy. And... This kid uh, from my dorm, who I didn't even know that well, he was like, we got to do this, man. Like, I stay up all night anyway. Like, who's really ordering food on the overnights? And if you do, he's like, it's probably going to be people fucking partying. You're probably going to, like, it's going to be, like, booze. People are going to give you drugs. You're going to see, like, sex stuff. I was like, oh, this might be a good job, you know? So I show up. They, uh, they tell me, okay, come in and train and uh, you do the morning shift, you do the 7 a.m. shift to, to train. I'm like, all right, fine. And I show up. I had asked them, I said, how should I dress? They said, I'll just, you know, just come dress normal. So I showed up in jeans and this T-shirt, this just like green T-shirt I'd owned for a couple of years. I show up. Oh, I'm first, I, I forgot the whole fucking first part of it. This is the most important part where I met this guy. And I looked him up. Today I looked him up because I was like, I wonder if this guy's still around. And he actually still works for the Hilton Corporation, so I can't oh say gosh. his real name. Um, so I'll, I'll use a fake name that is not that much more ridiculous than his real name. So I go for my interview. And first thing that happens is the lady I talked to at the, at the front is like, okay, Paul Giganto is going to come interview you. And I'm like, excuse me? Say like, Paul Giganto is going to come interview you. And as I said, this is a fake name that is not much exaggerated from the name of this real human. So she goes, you can go wait in that ballroom over there. And oh, there's a buffet set up so you can just eat whatever you want. So I'm <laughs> That's a, awesome. I'm a freshman. Yeah, I'm a freshman in college. And you know, you tell a freshman in college, eat whatever you want. And it's like game on. So I hit up this buffet this guy, Paul Giganto, comes in to interview me, and I have a plate of half-eaten fried chicken. In front. I've just been chowing that, like grease on my face. <laughs> like it's like the fucking Sunday church cookout, like fried chicken everywhere. This guy's name is Giganto, and again, not too far off. He's maybe five foot two. He's the tiniest man I've ever seen. And he's wearing like <laughs> shark skin suit. He's got rings on multiple fingers. He's got his hair like fucking like almost looks like a blowout. He's like a Jersey, like just a Jersey to the core archetype. And he sits down with me. The interview's like five minutes long. And the one thing I always remember him asking me, he goes, Chris, do you know what eggs over easy are? I'm like, yeah, I know what eggs over easy are. 
He's like, what about eggs over medium and eggs over hard? And that was the first time I heard that phrase. And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I know over easy. He's like, it's the same thing. You just cook them longer. And I got, like, got the job off of that interview. It was so bizarre. I show up. They tell me I have to work the morning shift. Already I'm bummed because I'm like, I'm not trying to get out of bed and drive to this hotel at 6 in the morning for a 7 a.m. start. I signed up for the overnight shift, you motherfuckers. I get put in this little booth in the basement with this woman and this guy. And the woman is the guy who takes the calls and the guy does the drops-offs and I'm shadowing him. And the woman, one of the first things she says, she goes, did you meet Paul Gigante? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, what'd you think of him? And I'm like, seems nice enough. She goes, listen, he loses his temper every once in a while. Don't take it personally. He might get up in your face and scream and shit, but he just needs to get some of it out of his system. You're lucky. With the, <laughs> She said, I swear to God, she goes, with the women, he twists our nipples. And I was like, what does that mean? Meanwhile, I'd shown up in this ratty t-shirt. They got all mad at me. They made me go to this room where they had like uniforms and they gave me a white button down and this gold vest. So I'm wearing this gold vest. I'm shocked. Why do I remember that vest? Dude, I'll tell you why. Wait till you hear the end of this story. I'll tell you why I remember it. So I shadow this guy who's the saddest person I've ever been around. And that's coming from me. You guys know that I am well acquainted with sadness and sad people. This guy was like 28. He was going to Rutgers he had gotten out of the Coast Guard, but we're walking around and the whole time he's like, I went to the Coast Guard specifically to get the college money and they fucked me out of it. My wife is going to Rutgers too. She quit her job. I'm paying for both of us off of this. And it was like a minimum wage job. I was like, oh my God, this guy is just so That's depressing. This woman is so depressing. There was only one room we entered where there was like this MILF woman. There's one MILF. Everybody else, it was not cool. I was like, this is not going to be what I think. I'm not going to see any like weird orgies or satanic rituals in the middle of the night. This sucks. So at the end of the day, they're like, all right, we're psyched to have you on board. Next training session is Wednesday or whatever. I'm like, oh yeah, I can't wait. Drove home, immediately called them. I'm like, hey, this is Chris. I just left a little while ago. And they were like, oh, yeah, man, what's up? You forget something? I go, no, um, I just want to let you know I, I'm never coming back there again. They're like, what are you talking about? We had a great day. I was like, I know, I can't. I can't ever. I'm never coming back there again. And they go, well, you got to bring the vest back. And I go, no, I'm keeping the vest, actually. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I'm keeping the vest. And they're like, well, then we can't. We're not going to mail you, a, mail you a check. I was like, that's fair. You'll, you'll pay me in the vest. So that's why you remember the, the vest, Bonaduce, because I used to wear it. To Robinson parties. I used to wear that's my gold right. vest. Oh my gosh, that's funny. I kind of remember you coming from that job to my house and explaining uh, yes, this it probably at the was, time that it happened. I would imagine the day I quit, I was I was hanging yeah. at your house later that day. <laughs> um, but that guy, that dude, Paul Giganto, Paul Gigante, uh, whatever fake name I give him, his real name's even funnier. But I never forgot this just maniac who would scream in your face. He's five foot two, wearing his suit. I'm like, that is to me. If I had to write a screenplay about a New Jersey character, he'd be front and center, right in the well, middle of it. Nick, remember when you were a maintenance man? I was. At that- oh, excuse me. Excuse me. I was the head of maintenance for <laughs> Sorry, Macintosh in on Route 18. Okay. For who? For the Macintosh in on Route 18. Oh boy. I went it, in that there doesn't and sound I, like literally- a place where great things happen. Actually, it was like a it was like a weird hotel. It was actually very well maintained and stuff like that. But um, 
it had like a mixed client it would be like business people, but then on weekends it would like change. And there was also like a couple of hotel rooms that were people were actually like living in, living in. I got to know everybody there and <laughs> saw so many weird things. Um, set off the entire fire alarm system, had the fire department there from like New Brunswick, East Brunswick, everybody, all because I was using a blowtorch to like light a cigarette in the maintenance room. <laughs> I didn't realize there was like a smoke detector right over my head. And I was like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I used to sleep in the rooms and I worked there. So I'd come in like all hungover. Do like the stuff I had to do first thing in the morning, grab coffee and like muffins from the front desk and then like take my master key, go find a room that nobody was in and like sleep in it for like two hours. On top of also retrieving people's gold teeth from drains. I had like these three Asian, all three, all three Asian businessmen in tank tops or guinea tees and tidy whiteies standing around a sink. Well, I'm standing there with a wrench <laughs> taking the sink apart to get this guy's gold filling out of the fucking. And nobody speaks a goddamn word of English. And I'm sitting there, I was like, all right, hold on. He's like pointing to his tooth. I was like, what are you talking about? He's pointing to his tooth. And then he's pointing down the drain. And I'm like, I take my flashlight. I'm like looking there. I was like, oh my God, I see it. I see it. Like, I'm like, oh, everybody's like yelling. I'm like, all right, just everybody get away from me. I'm standing there. I'm under the sink. And all I see is like Asian men in tidy whiteies, three of them in the room standing there while I'm taking apart their sink. It's fucking terrible. Did you, get but, um, it? Did you get the tooth? Oh, yeah. I got it out. I, I opened it up. I dumped it out. And they were like, oh, they're almost like where everybody's going crazy. They're so happy. I take his gold filling out. I give it to him. And then I put the drain back together. I get out of there. Did but they it was tip definitely you or weird. did they cabana club you? Nah, there was no tipping uh, going on they there. They cabana clubbed you? The tip was every morning when I go empty the garbage cans on all the different floors. There was like two floors. On the upstairs, there would always be like a stack of porno bags. So <laughs> I amassed like in the... In the maintenance room, this like from floor to ceiling, like pile of like pornography, videotapes, people would leak, leaving garbage bags outside their rooms, you know, when they were like leaving or whatever. It was just all kinds of crazy shit like that. But it was, it was a great job. And, uh, what was the other thing? Remember was just- one day you were working there and you called me up and you're like, my D, I'm, I'm overworking at the hotel. Uh, do you want a carpet for your house? I was like, maybe. You're like, I got this great carpet. It's from the hotel. It's brand new. They just tore it up. I'll, I'll bring it over when I'm done with my shift. I'm like, okay, great. So <laughs> Nick comes over at the end of his shift, try in his in his Bronco. We unload this carpet, and the house I lived in, right at Robinson Street, upstairs had an abandoned kitchen. So it was a kitchen, and it still had cabinets and a sink, but not, nothing else. So yes. it was like an unusable kitchen. And we're like, oh, it's a nice carpet. Like, you know, <sighs> this is great. So Nick and I, I want to say we lay down the carpet, but really we just unroll it and <laughs> slice it. We don't, like, attach it to the floor or do any of the, <laughs> the things that you do when laying carpet. We're like, oh, this is great. So a couple of days pass, and... You know, everybody's walking around the house and what they're doing, and the world's worst outbreak of athlete's foot occurs. <laughs> People have, in the house have athlete's foot that's like up their shin bones from walking on this carpet. It was like the most awful thing you could possibly imagine. And then, and I, I think you a we, gift of a rug and, and fungus. There's so much on this outline, but this episode's flying by. 
I've been told oh. that if I want to ask you guys about a particularly New Jersey ex- employment experience you've had, that I should bring up your time spent together at Arthur's Steakhouse, Lake Mohawk, oh, yeah. New Jersey. Uh, oh, is head parking Nazi there? I was a busboy slash dishwasher <laughs> slash occasional extremely poor waiter mm. working there. That was a weird place because there's the famous Arthur's Steakhouse in Hoboken. This was not that. It was connected to I've that in to some that way. One. Yeah, this was not that. It was. It I think was there's a, one down in New Brunswick too, right? There's one in Morristown too. The one in um, that one in. Um, North Brunswick was fantastic. I used to love going yeah, there. Oh my god! So you guys did Great not work burgers. in one of the good ones. I don't. I mean, the steakhouse was actually fine. I think the food was all right. It was just it was in Lake Mohawk in Sparta, and it was like, <laughs> <clears throat> I, and I love that area. I really do. But Lake Mohawk is like a private lake community, so there's no parking in Lake Mohawk intentionally because they don't want people coming over there. And there's like a boardwalk by the lake, but you can't go on it unless you belong to like. <laughs> this association or whatever. So they don't want people from the outside coming to Lake Mohawk, but you can go to Arthur's and like have a steak meal there and there's a parking lot. So often people, because they want to come there and hang out, they'll just park in Arthur's parking lot. So my whole job was that summer was to make sure that nobody parked in the parking lot. And I was like a smart ass, I don't know, over 17 or 18 year old kid. And, like, my job is to hang out in a parking lot, like, basically smoke pot, hang out in a parking lot in the summertime, and, like, tell people they couldn't park there. And then when they wouldn't move their car, do something terribly vindictive to them <laughs> and use my car to, like, drag it out of the lot into the street or call a tow company or park them in with other cars and, like, you know, that kind of, like, crazy shit. So I enjoyed my job immensely. But it was <laughs> it was it was actually kind of far for us. It was, I mean, it wasn't too far, but it was, like... I don't know why we took this job, but we did, and and it was just like a wild summer. I mean, and everyone, <clears throat> everyone who worked at the rest. So Nick and I, I mean, we were late teenagers, right? Like seventeen, eighteen years old. But everyone else who worked there was an adult and a professional restaurant industry person, and they were all completely in. Scene. I remember one time when I was washing dishes back there, the chef was a, just one of those, you know, kind of a stereotype of chefs. He has an awful temper. You know, he thinks he's working at per se, but really we're in this steakhouse in a lake house, you know, a private lake community in New Jersey. And he was always angry and complaining about things and screaming at the waiters. So one day, one of the waiters comes into the kitchen and the chef starts screaming at him and they're fighting, yelling. And the waiter just picks up one of those giant saute pans that you only see in restaurants that's 18 inches across and he just cracks the chef in the head and the chef completely goes unconscious instantly like a Looney Tunes cartoon and he's a 350 pound goombats out like a light and he's laying there and everybody this is you know service hasn't opened yet it's before the, you know we're doing all the this prep before work before the like, restaurant opened the guys this before the off? restaurant opened like I'm still cleaning dishes from from last night's service which somebody should have cleaned and you know the the waiters and waitresses are, are you know tying up the silverware and they they have some kind of altercation <laughs> he knocks them out cold so a couple of people drag him onto the prep table a stainless steel prep table and he's laying there 
and everyone's freaking out because service is going to start in half an hour or whatever. And he, he has a bunch of things that have to cook, et cetera. And so the waitresses are standing around like, you know what we should do? They're like, we should blow some cocaine up his nose. This will get him <laughs> right away. This will, this will get him right up. He loves coke. We'll just blow, we'll toot a little thing up his nose. And I'm standing there thinking, like, he could be dead. I mean, he just got hit in the head with a 20-pound, you know, metal pot. And this is – there's a bunch of, you know, the brain trust is standing around trying to figure out, well, maybe we'll do it this way. Like, I could take a straw and put it in my mouth and then blow it up his nostril. I mean, that was the kind of place was the people were absolutely out of their gourds. And then every Friday night, they had a karaoke night. And it took me a little bit to figure this out. And it was a karaoke night. They had a karaoke guy come, but really it was a cover for a swingers thing. So all these swingers would come and meet and sing karaoke at this place. And it was the same, I don't know, 20 people that would come every week. And every week there was this guy and he would come up. And when he would come up, everyone would like clap and giggle. And he was a really tall, big, burly guy. And he would sing Big Bad John because his name was John. You know, Big Bad John. And as he would sing it, he would have the world's largest erection <laughs> in front of this entire restaurant. He would be karaoke to Big Bad John, and it looked like the seams on his khaki pants were about to blow out into outer space. And he would do this every single week, and it just got to be a thing where everyone in the restaurant would know, like, oh, it's time for Big Bad John and his Big Bad John to get up and sing. I mean, the guy had oh no gosh. shame. It was a planned thing he would do every he week. He would get himself erect and then go sing karaoke in front of a crowded room? Every week. <laughs> I'm assuming he would go to the bathroom beforehand and, you know, start the lawnmower and, you know, and then stand in front of there. But, I mean, it was a known thing. And, and he was like, oh, it's time for Big Bad John to, to Where's come Where's my fluffer? Where's my fluffer? Now, when we talk about being grownups, I have to just give a, a, a very heartfelt, I think we can all agree that I had one of the most New Jersey jobs you could ever have almost to a cartoonish degree when I was at Rutgers. I was uh, 19, right on the cusp of my 20th birthday, and I was hired by Mark Moran and Mark Skirman of Weird New Jersey Magazine. I was their gopher boy. I used to do deliveries, pick up boxes at the warehouse, uh, enter names in the in the mailing list, copy edit stuff, uh, put, do, put all the stamps on their mailings twice a year, and then they also, though, let me write and let me expand creatively. And the longer I worked for them, the more they trusted me with that. And I, I can actually say that my love of New Jersey is owed to them. I think a lot of people found a lot of pride and love in this state because of them. And also my life as a creative person, they just taught me like, you got to be the one to do all the hard work yourself and then you can do all the creative stuff. And my God, if you want to talk about a New Jersey job, I, I would be remiss to not mention my four and a half, five years spent working for those guys because I got to see every inch of this state. I got to, uh, I got to explore it, all the weird stuff, and also all the the back end infrastructure of every business that could possibly sell a magazine in this state. And uh, it also gave me the most unquestionable New Jersey credibility. Like, I don't care how long I lived in New York. If anybody ever tried to give me shit, I'd be like, hey, I was the only employee at Weird New Jersey Magazine besides the owners for four years. And people were like, all right, yeah, you're a Jersey. You're a Jersey guy. Through and through. When you, when you got the job at Weird New Jersey, 
I don't want to say I was jealous because that's the wrong word. I was happy for you. But in my mind, I thought, wow, Chris has just obtained the literal coolest possible job <laughs> in existence. I mean, I mean, I know you had to do a million things that were you no, know, hard it was. work and not glamorous, but that to me was the coolest job. I think w- what's a really... What's a really, is there a really good, weird New Jersey story that we haven't heard before? I'm trying to think. Well, first of all, I'll say this too, though. Like when you're saying like, you know, it's not a glitzy job and it was a lot of hard work. I actually thank God for that side of it too. Cause those guys built, if you're from anybody listening from the state of New Jersey is going, yeah, weird New Jersey. That's like definitive, especially for people our age. Like that was and I think still now, it's just such a point of pride, this magazine. But I, I really thank God for the not glitzy parts because those guys taught me something that's just served me over and over again, which is like... Yeah, where else are we going to learn that firsthand, you know, like the real the grunt work, you know? And like you can, if you want, because I'm sure if you went to some publishing company and pitched them, hey, we want to make a magazine about haunted trees in New Jersey abandoned mental hospitals in Jersey, people would laugh you out of the room. But they're like, all right, screw it. We'll make it ourselves. We'll be, drive it around ourselves. We'll make relationships with every bookstore manager. We'll start with the independent bookstores. And then when they can't ignore us, we'll deal with Barnes and Noble and Borders. Like just the whole idea. It was, it was this thing where you guys, you, you guys, like my brother and all his friends, you guys taught me about punk rock where I was going, huh, these musician kids are just doing it themselves. But that felt like a very music thing. All of a sudden, weird New Jersey. I'm like, oh, if you're willing to like pick up the boxes at Patterson and drive them right to the fucking bookstore manager, they'll put them on your shelves. Like, it's not rocket science. And ever since then, everything in entertainment, it's always like when all my peers go left, I always wind up going right and wind up doing some fucking crazy shit. Like the public access show, I would not have done that if not for punk rock and if not for weird New Jersey. But I've had these major examples in my life of just, oh, if you go and you work harder than anyone expects you to, you can maybe pull off a strange thing. As far as like the weird New Jersey actual stuff from the magazine that maybe has never, like a behind the scenes thing I can air out all these years later, um, I was, I don't, I don't remember if we wrote about this in the magazine. I was once on the job held at gunpoint and that was really terrifying. That was really like terrifying. With, like driving a van or something or actually at the warehouse no, or something? Uh, no. Or like um, delivering? We went up to Sussex County. This girl had sent us a letter about this, like, it was like a, an abandoned home for like wayward boys. It was like, basically if you were in like Elizabeth or Newark or Bayonne or, you know, certain North Jersey cities, if you were like a real juvenile delinquent, they would send you up to this house in, in Sussex County. And that was your school now. And you'd be out in the middle of nowhere where you couldn't cause trouble. And we were up there and this girl and her brother met us and I was young. They were, they were, they were, not, they were around my age or maybe even younger. I was probably 22, 23 at the time. And we're walking around in the house and it's this like creepy giant abandoned house. And then we go in the basement and we turn a corner. First, we see that somebody has a dummy hanging from like an old light fixture on the ceiling. So we're like, oh shit, oh God. And like we thought we found a body. So we're all on edge already. And then just the absolute thing that when you're like a kid, like all of us, like when we're all like, putting garbage bags on our legs, running around underground, trying to be the Goonies, whatever. 
going up to the bin. You kind of hope this happens, but in your heart, you know, you don't want it to happen. We're in the basement <laughs> and we hear the door open and we just hear footsteps right above our heads. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, man. And then all of a sudden, basement door opens. We just see these hunter boots coming down the steps and this guy's got a shotgun and he turns it and he points it at me and Mark from Weird New Jersey and this <laughs> random girl who happened to send us a letter and her little brother. So oh my gosh. He points this gun at us and he just goes, hey, I know the owner of this house. You're not him. You shouldn't be in here. And dude, to his credit, Mark Morant, just in that moment, and he was, I mean, like we got ourselves in a lot of bad situations and like he knew how to handle himself, but I've never seen balls of steel just manifest this quickly and logically. The guy goes, I know the owner of this house and you're not him. And instantly Mark Moran just goes, and you are right. We are trespassing. If you want to call the cops and get us trespassing tickets, we'll take them. But I promise you, that is not as big a deal as you putting, pointing a gun at us right now. So whatever laws we broke trespassing, you're probably yeah. breaking worse ones, pointing a shotgun at our faces. So yeah, how about you that. walk away and we leave? And the guy was it's just like, like fine. Got out of there. That was like, damn. About That was the second scariest that job ever got. But the first one I wrote about it was when a guy tried to uh, rape me in the woods over by the Willowbrook Mall. But that's another story for another day. It's another story for another day. Now, that's intense. It was wild, man. There were a few things like that. There were a few things like that. Yeah, I mean, dude, I mean, like, I, I think Mark, well, they eventually followed up. Mark wrote a book about this case, but like, I did a whole, one of the things I'm proudest of when I did there, there was a girl whose body was found in Springfield up on top of a quarry. All these rumors of Satanists. Book. And it was back in the, I think the early eighties, maybe late seventies, but I think early eighties, back in the whole satanic panic era. And I mean, I went to like the union County library, the Springfield library, the Elizabeth library, hitting up like the microfiche, the milk microfilm. I used to love that. Like that was the type of stuff they'd let me do if I was like, and as I was there over the years, I did less and less of the deliveries, more of that. But it was just heaven for me. That job, I wish I was still working that job today, man. Finding all these articles, witchcraft, this and that. We published this big thing and about this girl and the murder's never been solved. Dude, we used to be sitting in the office in Mark's house and the phone would ring. And if it was the weird New Jersey line, unless he knew the number, we'd just let the voicemail pick up because you never knew who, what it was going to be. And... A few different times, I'm just like sitting on the one computer, he's sitting on the other, and we just hear beep. Hey, so I know who killed Jeanette De Palma. It was blah, blah, blah. Everybody in town knew it, this and that. Here's why they covered up. Here's how he was connected to the police. Anyway, yeah, that's who killed this girl. Like, she's like sitting in the office while somebody's like, hey, here's the name of a murderer from the 80s that no one ever got. Wow. And you're just sitting there. I'm like, and me and Mark just turned to each other, and it's like, you know, that was the, that was like, the, did you have to like turn that information? In yeah. Mark or? was, Mark was always on top of that. I was just like, we're not wow. fucking around. Yeah, yeah. But some of That's it would crazy. be like, Oh, you know, like, and eventually this was written about where it'd be like, Hey, no, it was this kid who was it, like, people would say, Oh, it was the police chief's son. So you're like, what are you going to do? But then, you know, it is shady. We'd call the Springfield police department. Oh, we're looking for information on that case. And they're like, every record about that case got destroyed in a flood. And you're like, ah, what is going on? So just like that job for many reasons. First of all, the ridiculousness of it, the things I got to see and do, the pride and love it gave me. 
Weird New Jersey Magazine for a lot of people of our generation, myself included, was this thing where it was like, it made us, it made me feel like, okay, I, people have always made fun of Jersey. I got this accent. I live in this place. Everybody thinks it's terrible. But fuck you, this magazine makes me realize I can be proud of it. And it's a big part of why I think we're doing this dumb fucking podcast today. I mean, I think too, I first started to to pick up Weird New Jersey because I was interested in the spooky stuff, the Devil's Tree, the Devil's Tower, the you bin, know, the Echo certainly. Ghost, the Bin, absolutely. Jersey Devil, everything. All of it. All it's a that. big part of growing oh, up where we grow up. And then I think as it as it went on and then when you started working there, I started to get more interested in this in the I don't want to call it strange history, but I would say un less reported history of yeah, New Jersey where yeah. they would write about things, you know, when they wrote about the death row stuff in South Jersey and, you know, the Bigfoot hoax and all those things yeah. I found super interesting. And I think that was, it was so cool when, when you worked there, because I think for our entire crew, we all, even though we did nothing except occasionally get in the car with you, we all felt like we had a stake in this, this very amazing, uniquely New Jersey thing that existed. I also I actually, I actually got a picture into weird New Jersey, which I was always very proud of. Which picture? So that was. It was a picture of like this really long limousine with like all these extra wheels on it. Like they <laughs> took all these limos and put it together. So I'm in Carteret and I'm like I'm on this weird job. It's an old glass factory where um where we have to go through the woods, do a survey, do a boundary survey, and there's like glass slag everywhere. So there's a creek that runs through there, and when you look at the creek, it's just like sparkling because it's just filled with broken glass. There's broken glass through the whole woods. There's giant chunks that are like three foot high of like blue and clear uh, like glass slag. I walking through there, all of a sudden I come out at the edge of the woods. It comes up on the back of like a industrial park in Carteret, and all of a sudden I see this giant long white limo, and I'm like, oh my god! So like I think I had. A flip phone with like a camera on it at the time. So like I took a picture of it and I wound up like emailing in. I was like, you know, whatever. I think I even had it as Nikki Bonaduce. And uh <laughs> Yeah, it was like Carteret, New Jersey. I gotta find it. I know it's in one of the one of the weird New Jerseys I have. It's I came maybe two thousand four or two thousand five around then. So that that would be my guess. It was also uh I also realized like I was always secretly a very motivated guy and I had a chip on my shoulder and wanted to like get things done. And I think it was the first time a lot of my friends were like, Oh, Chris, is it just kind of this, like the depressed little kid on the fringe of our group? Like he's actually going out there and fucking getting it. And it was kind of the first time I think I felt like, Oh, I'm going to be someone who kicks down some doors, man, because these guys have unlocked it anyway, running a little long, but Nick, Mike has, um, instructed me because as you know yes. i build the basic yes. outline mike really fills it out in depth uh-huh. you tend to wing it but mike <laughs> has told me i have to ask about something that i don't think i know any stories about it but he's told me okay. that we need to hear about the lecithin factory oh yeah oh that was one of, another one of my favorite weird new brunswick jobs um this is this is actually a really positive awesome experience of uh like a family kind of part of the area Somerset. it's actually Somerset. you go right down somerset street to a wonderful place called terra greens there's a pitch and putt and uh was it a nine hole golf course or whatever it is and then they also owned this place that 
made baking released products and uh, great company family owned and operated they had like food scientists there and they actually produce stuff in here in Jersey that goes to like every single commercial bakery in New Jersey and then all over the country proudly made in New Jersey in Somerset New Jersey but their main product was this thing called soy lecithin if you know anything about ever reading a label on everything that soy lecithin is in absolutely everything and I never thought about soy lecithin until I worked at this place and had some of the most interesting experiences of my life that ended in I don't know how but I I was just insane my goodness I wouldn't even know where so lecithin is this terrible product it's not terrible it's it's just very sticky and it's like molasses and it gets on everything and we'd have giant tankers from Purdue <laughs> come from their soybean fields after they process soybean. This is a byproduct of making like chicken feed and they'd pump it off and we'd make all these crazy products of it. And like periodically like pipes would explode. The stuff would fly everywhere. I mean, I used to personally make like these, I had like no experience in industrial manufacturing (laughs) of food products, but like I go into this place and with three people, we made like over 20 different like baking release products that, like you're just amazed at this crazy thing with soy lecithin, mineral oil, every kind of terrible uh, vegetable byproduct. Also had a crazy, um, not crazy. He's very nice guy, but uh, like leave <laughs> an escaped Nazi that became a like world class like food scientist. What? And in his retirement, like because he just liked to stay busy and stuff, worked developing. Into the 2000s, like Wait, hold unique. on. You can't just drop that. Well, he was an actual Nazi from Germany? Well, that was the story that I heard from the other guys that okay. worked there. Okay. It, but it's unverified Nazi. Unverified Nazi, but he made uh, some like groundbreaking food additives uh, that are made right here in New Jersey and developed them for this company. But And I believe they're still there and operating to this day, but, uh, but that was a unique experience also. That and also working at a, uh, the... The kosher pizza place in Highland Park, another wonderful experience. And Nick, but I won't go there. Even today, I feel like you know we'll all text constantly on the Wotown thread, and you'll like I'll be like, oh, I'm like working on my other podcast. Mike D's picking up his gigs, and then you'll be like, yeah, I, I spent the day walking on planks, uh, hovering above the Bayonne <laughs> Bridge. Like even right now, you are like a true backbone of New Jersey worker building out stuff. And are you aware that the stories of your current existence are insane to the rest of us? You know, and it's funny because I, I have a couple other uh, close friends and, and they're kind of like work friends and they're like, I tell you guys stories that these are the guys that like, you know, you go through those stories with, and at the time you don't realize what you're doing or whatever. But I mean, it's just, you know, that's just, what you do, everybody, everybody plays their part out there. And I don't know, it's just, New Jersey is a crazy place. We've never lived normal lives. We've never had normal jobs. So I've never lived my life normally. Why would I start now? I mean, you know, if I'm, if I think we're the kind of people that if we're not challenged in whatever we're doing, or you know, you're always going to try your hardest and do your best at whatever you're doing. And I think that's part of being from New Jersey, you know, I got to ask going against the grain. Is there anything, and I know, <clears throat> I know I don't want to put you in a spot of like revealing anything you're not coming with. No, Is there okay. anything that comes to mind where you've done it as part of your job where it's just a thing you do and then you tell other people you did it and they're going, what are you talking about? That's like the scariest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. 
Probably. I mean, I, you know, what it is. I, when I was a kid, I was very afraid of heights. And then, um, I think just working with my grandfather when I was a kid, I didn't want to be like, you know, um, embarrass myself from. So I used to climb ladders a lot and, you know, go up 40 feet when I was like 10, 11 years old. So I kind of got used to doing that thing. And I, uh, when I got into my profession and I got into the, the construction end of it and <clears throat> had certain opportunities that I'd never I'd be like, Oh, I'm never going on a bridge. And like, next, you know, I'm on like my first bridge job. And, uh, you know, you do these things and you try to do them as safe as you can. And, you know, you kind of have to, I don't know, um, be in the right headspace when you're doing it. It's dangerous. Uh, walking over the top of the Bayonne Bridge. I mean, I've walked across the top of the Bayonne Bridge. I can't even tell you how many times. Like not even like, the roadway. A, like the no, the actual like beams walking oh up God. over the arches. Go <laughs> oh up to the God. top of the bridge, and then at the top of the bridge, walk across the cross steel, and then set up in the center of the bridge up top there, and have to like do precise measurements of the bridge from the top of the bridge. I could like, never you know, do you're, that. And the water's, you know, you're above the roadway. There's there's a million other people like hanging underneath you in hand baskets. And I used to have to go on this thing called the spider lift on the outside of the bridge. And just a hydraulic line, not even hydraulic, it's under air pressure. And <laughs> since these hoses run all over the place, there's a single wire and then everything's operated on air pressure. And you, it's supposed to be for two people, but if the two people aren't the same size, it kind of like teeters on like the center wire. So the one guy was like way bigger than me. So I kept on telling him, you got to stand close to the middle. And then you're going up and down. What happens is condensation gets into these airlines and your lift will just get stuck on the side of like the bridge. Like you're just, you're floating in space. There's nothing you can climb off onto. So there's a series of things you have to do is like, okay, there's an air filter, pull the air filter down, drain the air out, yell down to somebody else because the radios probably weren't working properly. Oh my God. Have them go down to one of these giant air pigs, drain those lines out repressurize the system. Now you could be like hanging out on the side of this like bridge. Like you don't think about it. Like how there, many like hundreds, and, like, of feet, hundreds of feet high would you be just dead? Oh, I, I forgot how high the top of the Bayonne bridge is. I can't remember right now, but we actually raised the deck there 60 feet. So, uh, so that these super huge tankers could come in. There was times when we were, you'd be on, there's like a safe span, which is like this metal decking that they put underneath the bridge and you'll be on top of there. And it was so funny at high tide, some of the bigger ships, uh, they would have to know to put their radio antennas down when they were coming under the bridge. And if they forgot and the tide was a little too high, you would hear their antennas going <laughs> like underneath the bottom of the safe span. You'd be like, whoa, like you're, like you're on it and you're like, yeah, all right. I have like a beam clamp like on the steel where I'm wearing like a harness. And then I just have like what we used to call monkey tails. This is like right before they implemented like these retractable fall protections. So the monkey tails are already six feet long. So if you fell from where you were, you were falling six feet plus like, you know, the length of your body. So you were going to fall and swing like 12 feet. So one of the guys, the iron workers, the guys that put out the safety lines for us all the time so we can get where we need to get to and, uh, and do our job. He fell off while he was putting up the safety protection. And he happened to have like a huge piece of steel in his hands, one of the brackets to attach to it. And like, he fell and he manages to hold on to the piece of steel at the same time. So of course, like everybody runs out there, you know, the other iron workers run out. I'm like 20 feet away from him, like, Oh my God. Like he came up and it was just like, you don't ever, even if you, that thing catches you, you only have so many minutes before 
if you cut off your circulation in your body when you're wearing that, that you'll do permanent like damage or you could actually kill yourself when the pressure is taken oh off because God. it can release like a clot to your body. They have all these like crazy things. That, so the quicker you get somebody up, the better. He got, he got pulled up and everything. But I mean, that, that kind of shit happens all the time. And this is probably one of the craziest jobs. I mean, our other jobs were crazy growing up. We were security guards, like, you know, all kinds of other stupid jobs, uh, working for Johnny's downtown, being uh, oh, Johnny's pizza, pizza delivery guys. D- yeah. Working at Johnny, I mean, that's a Western's job story because that basically meant you could never get a speeding ticket again. Yeah, and Frank was like so good to us and, <laughs> you know, he let me work in the kitchen there and make some money when I needed to make money and then we started driving, like doing deliveries and, and everything else like that. And, you know, it was just, uh, we, but this is definitely probably the craziest job. And I think part of like, like you hear the stories about what we did when we were kids and whatever. Like, I've always had that same thrill of like, I want to be somewhere where nobody else has been before, and to have that experience. But like, it's not like bragging rights, but I guess it is. But just it just to me, that's always been appealing. Even just doing my regular surveying, when doing these boundaries, I'm walking through places people probably haven't walked through in like ages, or only a few people see. And and even like what I do now, like I'm at the airport and wherever else I might be working. You know, when other times are you going to be on the top of like, you know, a hundred story building before the walls are up and you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. So it's thrilling, but it's extremely dangerous. And what happens is like anything else, you get naturalized to it and, you know, just, uh, you know, just be aware of the dangers around you. Be smart about what you do and uh, realize that at any moment in time, you can just die. I mean, there's a company I was working for a couple of years ago and this is like the the same old tragic story. It's either like somebody's just about to retire or uh, they're you know very close and uh, they picked up a little overtime. The guys were up on a building on a platform doing what they would always do. They had to stay a little bit later. They go up there, the platform collapses and these guys like, you know, collapse, you know, uh, 20, 30 stories to like their death. Like it's two years away from fucking retirement and you know, that's always, or the guy just retires and, whatever. But as far as dying on the job and stuff, I mean, people get hurt and die all the time. It's just terrible. But now you try not to think about it. You just do it. But the thrill is always there of like, it's challenging and you get to go to like weird places that nobody ever goes to. So, well, that's that's about the most Jersey job. I I feel like that's the end of discussion because the people actually, you're actually building the infrastructure of New Jersey. That doesn't get beat. And I do think it's, it's, I'll tell you what, like, there's a lot of wealth in New Jersey. There's a lot of traditional jobs, but I do feel like a lot of, um, a, to me, a lot of what makes this state this state is the unions. It's the longshoremen. It's down in South Jersey. People don't talk about like, it's the scallop fishermen. It's the farmers. Like there are a lot of cultures of Jersey that are just like hardworking people who break their backs. And I think it's a big part of why the state is what it is. Now, yeah, it's so goddamn expensive. You don't have any option. You got to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, dangle from a monkey tail up the Bayonne Bridge just to pay your <laughs> property taxes. Yeah, right. Now, I have forgotten to think of a game until right before we started, but I, I think I've actually stumbled into a good one in my mind. Tell me what you guys think about this. This is truly idiotic. This is basically a game to see who's going to bail first. So I thought of, I'm trying to think of like, what's a really good job that represents New Jersey? 
not necessarily a good or bad job in the quality of the job, but as far as representative of New Jersey, I think the three uh, of us, with no intention of actually doing this job, the three of us should all apply for a job. See who's willing to take this gag the furthest. And whoever the last oh, one the is job. to bail, win something. My thought being, we should all try to become jockeys. At the <laughs> I just got a job with the U.S. Census, and I worked for a day, and then I quit. Really? I always heard oh, that yeah. was a pretty sweet side gig. I guess it is, but I just—I'm at a point. In my I was at a point in my life where uh, going through a divorce and having um, the probability of confrontation with people that didn't want to. <laughs> You know, answer the questions or like if you hear the crazy stories about, oh, yeah, people come to the door with guns and like get off my property, threaten you. It's like probably not a good job for me right now because I'd probably engage with them. So that, I decided that I was like, you know what? You know, walking up on strangers' houses in Southern Ocean County is probably a bad idea while I'm going through a divorce. I think we should each apply to be ticket takers for New Jersey Transit to be the guys on the trains who walk around punching the tickets. That's a, a conductor job, position. Man. That's a conductor I'm position. I'm just saying. It's really, it's fucking hard to get and they're doing cutoffs. Well, You'll never, they're not even hiring. Uh, I went through the whole process. You tried? I was going to yeah, be a conductor. I remember yeah. you told me you had to walk up a fake set of stairs, right? And lift and open and close a door. Yeah, they had <laughs> yeah. that stuff, but then you actually like, they thought I was colorblind. So they made me ride the train for a day with like, um, from New Brunswick. I did like the whole uh, Northeast corridor for like one day. And all I did was hang out with these different conductors. And then they brought me up to like the engine car and they were like, all right. Um, the, the guy's like so pissed off. He's like, I know you're not colorblind. He's like, these fucking idiots. He's like, they see one wrong thing or whatever. When you do the visual, he's like, they make you do this. He's like, so just take it as like a day for, uh, for your job training for whatever. So I was like, all right, cool. I meet all the conductors. They start telling me crazy stories, which is just awesome. And it's like, actually, it was like a really good paying job. It was like, at the time, I was like out of school. I was like, I need some kind of like career option at this point because I would like, kill, I, that's like an actual quiet dream job of mine to be NJ well, Transit. When you hear, yeah, if you do your time, like I guess the first few years, the way they explain it to me is they, they run you around like crazy because they want to make sure that you're a reliable person and you get to your train. So they'll send you all the way north. They'll send you all the way south. They could send you anywhere. But then you get hooked up and like you're on like you know, a steady like line. You could be on the Jersey Shore line. So I was talking to one of the guys. He was picked up a shift on the Northeast Corridor, but he's like, yeah, he's like, I know all the people that ride for, you know, to go into the city in the morning. He's like, I helped the one guy put his washing machine in, like, you know, blah, 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 like personal relationships with the people on the train. And I'm like, oh, you ever have any problems? He's like, oh, yeah, all the time. He's like, he's like, I don't get into it too much anymore. He's like, but if we have a little bit of a problem, he goes, we'll have a little boot party on somebody's head. I was like, he goes, by the time he called transit cops, he's like, the chances of them being there if you're in the middle of nowhere, he's like, they're not going to show up, you know? So, but, uh, but yeah, it definitely was like, uh, seemed like an awesome job. I actually wound up going, going back to school after that. So, but I went through the entire process and it was like lengthy. Oh, like I would love that. Very lengthy. Riding those trains all day sounds like the Oh yeah. Most- that just one of the great jobs someday, someday I'll dream. How about this? Well, ridership's so low now that they've like been cutting people and yeah, you know, I'm furloughing. Sure. It's like, it's, it's, I feel bad oh, for them. You know? Of course. What if we next summer, all three of us genuinely call and try to apply to be cowboys in the cowboy show at wild west city. Done. <laughs> we'll see who bails first.
You know what's going to happen? I'm going to wind up getting the job and doing it. It's going to be all three of us. It's going to be like my summer, it's gonna be like my summer weekend job. It's going to be all three like, of oh, us when not you guys, wanting you to going down, down the shore this weekend? Nah, it's like, I got, a, I got this gig up at Wild West City. I'm like looking forward to it. Me and my buddies, like, we get to, to call, shoot each other. Well, now it might just... I have to call Hallie and be like, I'm really sorry. I accidentally broke Chris's leg, knocking him off a tin, the roof of a tin shack this afternoon. I'm really, really sorry that this happened. His spurs got caught in the gutter of the saloon, and uh, <laughs> you have to come meet us at the hospital outside of Byram. So I, this would be a matter of half of the bit is actually seeing if we can get past the interviews and convince these people liars. Second half of the bit is if it actually catches momentum, how far do we take it without bailing? Like, how many weekends deep into a summer do we work at Wild West City just to stop oh. the other guy? And what should the consequences be? For whoever craps out first, whoever takes it least far in the Wild West City hiring process. The loser oh, then has to get a job at Great Adventure. Oh. Oh. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'd work at Wild West City before I work at Great Adventure. I don't care if they give you free tickets or not. Oh. I had a couple friends that worked at Great Adventure, though. Yeah. I remember Pooch? Pooch used to work at Great Adventure. That's the most amazing sentence we could end this episode on. Pooch used to work at Great Adventure. We'll let you wonder about that forever, everybody. Have a good night. Woe Town is produced by myself, Mike D, and Carson Cup. Edited, mixed, recorded, all that secret weapon stuff by Carson Cup. Theme music is Orange Water by GDP, West Orange Native, GDP, by the way. Remember, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash New Jersey's The World. Go check it out. You get a ton of stuff over there for your time and your money. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you ever need me, what you do is you drive your car down that old white horse pike down in Hamilton. I'll meet you at the Silver Coin Diner. Thanks again for listening to Wotan. I hope you've enjoyed that one. I hope that you really... Actually, I will tell you, Nikki Bonaduce's words about, about being a guy working with his hands on the infrastructure in New Jersey actually got me like a little emotional, philosophical. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Remember, if you join up at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world, you get an entire second episode of Wotown this month. We really pack in the content for you guys because we love you and we appreciate you. This month's episode is all about the mafia and specifically has this amazing breakdown uh, where Mike D made a Google map of, of a mafia area that he used to explore as a kid, sneaking through the woods. It's really incredible. Here's sneak peek. This map, everybody should go to this map. We're going to distribute the link with the episode. You can click on the left where it says the lookout. And awesome. take, you can see the cliff. You can see you can see the actual cliff. Okay, so this is like an actual guided tour of Mafia Road. Yes, I, I went through and I located all the places <laughs> that I thought were important to, okay. if you were to go there today. So we've got the lookout on the cliff. So sometimes you see people around there. And so then you would go to this lookout and you could hang out there and it was really cool. And I remember there's an infamous story there where some oh, people that house. we went to high school with went up there and they got a hold of a couple of rifles and they went up there and they basically shot out 
all these car windows from up there with rifles, like just went up there and were just blasting out car windows. And they had been doing this for like a period of time. And eventually maybe like the fifth or sixth time they did it, they got caught. But like, so basically they went up there and used this as a, as a sniper's nest. And to my knowledge, no one was killed, but a lot of property was destroyed. All right. The West Orange way, the West Orange way. All right, everybody, thanks again for listening to New Jersey is the World. If you want more, patreon.com slash New Jersey is the World. If you got anything to say to us, 973-780-4660. We're so lucky to have you on board. Thanks for being part of this community, and we'll see you next month.